We have a very special guest today, Peter J. Williams, and I will read you a very short bio. He has a very long bio on the Cambridge University website and on the Tyndale House website. You can look those up. Uh, that's why we have Google, but I'll read you the short version. Peter J. Williams, PhD from Cambridge, is principal of Tyndale House, uh, Cambridge, an institution committed to promoting trust in the scriptures. Formerly senior lecturer in New Testament at the University of Aberdeen, he is also a member of the English Standard Version Committee and chair of the International Greek New Testament Project. Blissfully married for 21 years to Catherine and have a daughter, Magdalena, and a son, Leo. The family is regularly involved in United Beach Missions in France and Belgium. So we're very glad to have him here. But on a personal note, uh, it's been cool to kind of develop a little friendship. It's hard over over such a vast ocean between the colonies and uh, England, but uh, it has been neat over the years to have him here and get to know him a little bit better. I owe him uh, a debt of gratitude, and I found him to be a true friend. There was a few years back when I was preparing to give a, a lecture at uh, Abilene Christian, Moody Coliseum. There's 2,500 people getting ready to get up and speak. And out in the corridor, I run into none other than Peter J. Williams, who's also there uh, doing some stuff. And uh, we just talked for a while, and he shared those three words that only a true friend will say to another friend, zip your fly. <laughs> and sure enough, he saved me, and I am eternally grateful for that. With no further ado, Peter J. Williams. Well, it's really a great pleasure to be with you. Uh, I've enjoyed getting to uh, know you, and you don't need to tell that story um, again. I, I'm, I'm going to handle the scripture, so um, it's, uh, but uh, yeah, but I'm really grateful, and I do remember it too as well. <clears throat> so let's turn in God's word to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel, so I think in your language, 2 Samuel in my language, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, and we're going to look at uh, God's word. Uh, a sad incident in the life of David, and look at the background of that. So do please uh, turn into God's wonderful, infallible, inspiring, inerrant, exciting word. So 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all his realm. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then he returned to her house. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went down, went out to the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah 
slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why do you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark of it and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone from him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger sent, said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you. For the sword devours now one, but now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah was dead, her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Reading on, seven more verses. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arm, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there was a traveller to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock and herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. And he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against that man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. 
thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the house of hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's wives and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you a house of Israel and Judah. And this is too little, I would have given you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Sobering passage, isn't it? David is an incredible guy. He is actually the person whose name is most mentioned in the entire Bible other than God. The name David even occurs more than the name Jesus in the Bible. Because, of course, Jesus only occurs in the New Testament as a name. Of course, he's right the way through the Bible uh, in in terms of pictures of him. But the, the name David occurs that many times. He's an incredible guy. And he wrote more than half of the Psalms. And he's someone we can learn from because he was someone who had a great prayer life with God for much of his life. And he's also someone who trusted God. Those of us who who were there for the first service, we looked at that famous story of David and Goliath. And what we saw is that David was prepared to trust God and make himself very vulnerable fighting this huge warrior who was very well protected. It's not just that. David was really brave when he was looking after the little of the flock of his father. In fact, what he used to do is a lion or a bear would come and attack the flock. And he was prepared to risk everything to protect one little lamb. And you know what? When he would tell his brothers about this, you know, I'm sure they said, yeah, right. He couldn't put the video up on YouTube of, 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 you know, him against the lion. It would have been a great film. But, you know, maybe he had the carcass. But uh, uh, he was amazing. And he was so faithful at his job of a shepherd. He was prepared to risk his life for one little lamb. But what's he doing here? He's taking the lamb from the man next door. He's gone all the way from being the good shepherd to being like a ravenous, hungry animal himself feeding off the flock. So how did he get there? How did he get to that situation? Well, maybe it was sudden. It was just that afternoon temptation. You know, he woke up, he'd been a bit tired, he's maybe getting a bit older. Afternoon nap can be a good thing to have when you're, you're older, even, even uh, yes, you can start when you're younger if you like, if it works with your work pattern. He gets up from the afternoon nap, and so maybe it was just that nap. And if he hadn't been napping, you know, then it would have been okay. But he was at a weak point of the day. Well, I'm 46, nearly 47. Um, Some of you are younger, some of you are not so young. Um, And some of you will have been Christians for quite a while. And I just think about you being Christian for quite a while, and you've seen sometimes people go off the rails. It's very sad. It's one, other than death, it's the one thing that makes me really sad and want to cry, sometimes cry, is when I see people go off the rails. And sometimes they go off spectacularly off the rails, and it seems really sudden. But at least from my experience, every time I've known the inside story, it might have seemed sudden, but there was always actually a build-up. I don't want to say that's exactly what we're going to see with David. And so one of the things we're going to do is we're going to diagnose what went wrong with David because David actually underwent a gradual decay. And the scariest thing about this decay is it went on while God continued to bless him. So if I can just run through everything from when he defeated Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. 
The very next thing that happens is that he is favoured by Saul's son, Jonathan, who gives him all his best toys, sword, belt, everything, like giving his mobile phone and his car keys and everything. He just, and then we find that Saul's daughter fancies him, and so he marries her. And, and you know, he's just getting more and more favour, and he, he, he wins his battles. And every time Saul tries to kill him, time and time again, he escapes. God protects him. He's amazing at just protecting him time and time again. Then we see not just as that God protects him, but God gives him the kingdom. He becomes king, first of Judah, part of Israel, then of the whole lot. And then we see he's not just becomes king, but he defeats all the enemies round about and his kingdom becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. So all this time God's blessing him and it's not just that he becomes king of a really big kingdom. God then says to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you are going to have a throne and someone's going to be on that throne forever and ever. What an amazing promise. So God is just blessing him again and again and again. And yet at exactly this time we're going to see that David is departing from God in some significant ways. Way number one, we're going to look at three aspects of this. Way number one, ignoring scripture. I want you to look at the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Bible. And it's a law about kings. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 to 17. <coughs> this is what God said to, uh, through Moses to the people of Israel. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and you dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around about me. Then you may set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said you shall not never return that way again. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest he turn, uh, his heart turn away, and he shall nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So three rules. No acquiring lots of horses, no acquiring lots of wives, no acquiring lots of silver and gold, right? Those are the three rules. Now I want us to just look at what happens in the life of David. So David um, starts and he gets to have the wife, uh, uh, the daughter of Saul as his wife. She's called Michal or Michael, or, uh, depending on how you want to pronounce, pronounce it. And he has to run away and she actually gets given after that to someone else. Well, that was very irregular. So you could have thought, well, is he single or not now? I mean, is he divorced or not? Is she still his wife? Well, his interesting thing is we find out later he still thinks she's his, his wife because he wants her back. But then he meets this beautiful woman called Abigail. And uh, she has recently been widowed. She had a, a bad husband, and uh, he, he was killed. We'll go into that story shortly. And what we find is in uh, 1 Samuel, chapter 25, and verse 43 and 44, we, say, we see this, that um, she became, that's Abigail, became David's wife. And then, in verse 43, David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them, became his wives. So now how many wives has he got? Well, two or three, depending on how you count. Then what happens? Uh, we go over to 2 Samuel chapter 3. 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 2 through to 5. 
Sons were born to David at Hebron when he's just become king. His firstborn was Amnon, of, uh, son of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second, Kiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai. Well, that's another wife, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. That's another wife. And the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. That's another wife. And the sixth, Ithraim, the son of Egla. Another wife, David's wife. These were born to him in Hebron. That's 2 Samuel chapter 3. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to him. So on the wives' front, too many. Now, some people, when they read the Old Testament, they think, but it seems to be okay for those guys back then to have multiple wives. I mean, after all, you know, Abraham had multiple wives, Jacob had multiple wives, David had multiple wives. It seems like God was just more laid back about that sort of thing back then. Are you reading the same thing as I'm reading? Abraham had multiple wives. Why? Because he doubted God. Doubted God's promise. Did Abraham have a happy family as a result? Look at what happens. Uh, there's big conflict, actually. And you see, actually see Abraham's descendants fighting. In fact, I'd say the major source of world conflict today... Okay, there's North Korea as well. But the major uh, source of, of, nor of, of world conflict today is the Arab-Israeli conflict, which is, guess what, a conflict between descendants of Abraham because he had multiple wives. Right? Then you go to Jacob. Oh, what a happy family he had. <laughs> you know, I mean... The reason why they sell Joseph is because they think they can get some money for him, but their first plan was just murder. You know, it's not a happy family. David's children also murder, rape, and the rest. I'm sorry. The Bible is not saying having multiple wives is okay. It's saying when people depart from God's law, these are the disasters that happen, right? And Jesus taught us a way to read the Bible. It's really revolutionary. You read it in order. You know? So he's asked about the question of divorce. He says, look, go back to the beginning. In the beginning, God made them female and female. That's the pattern. So the beginning gives you the idea, well, God made Adam and one Eve. So following Jesus as to how we read the Bible, it's pretty obvious that this is not a good idea. So, uh, oh, oh, some people think Samson got away with it. You know, Samson got away with it. He was a man of God, man of faith, talked about in Hebrews 11, verse 32, as a man of faith. Well, he did trust God. And so they say, well, he got away with it, didn't he? Seemed to have, be a womanizer. No. Samson followed his eyes. He said, get me that woman. She looks right. She's right in my eyes. He broke all of the laws. And guess what? His eyes got put out. So he didn't get away with it, did he? He got away with it for a while. Often happens. Unhealthy habits. You know, you get away with them for a while, but at the end of the day, someone comes with a medical diagnosis and say, look, you know, it's because of this habit for a while. And you say, well, it didn't hurt me for the first 10 years or the 20 years or whatever. So that was David and wives. What about gold and silver? 2 Samuel chapter 8. 2 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 7. So he defeats his enemies. God gives them over to him. 2 Samuel 8 verse 7. And David took the shields of gold that were of the servants of Adadazer and brought them to Jerusalem. Seems fine, doesn't it? Three verses later, verse 10. Toy sent his son 
Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy, and Joram brought with him articles of silver and gold and a bronze. Next verse. These also David dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations that he had subdued. He's gathering up gold. What about horses? Oh yes, horses too. Now, I like horses. Nothing wrong with horses. Horses are very biblical. They're created by God. Great. But horses back then were particularly used a bit like tanks today. They were the choice weapon of war. Because how can you stand up against a horse, a war horse, a one-ton or more war horse, charging towards you? There's just no way that infantry can stand in the way. Now, God fights battles, but God doesn't fight battles using horses and chariots. Horses, you know, uh, chariots are always on the losing side in the Bible. Because God's saying, use my strength, not your great inventions, so that the glory goes to me. And so what you see, and it's a bit of a gruesome verse, but we'll read it anyway, because it's in the Bible, and we're meant to read it. Uh, So 2 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 4. David's defeated these guys, and it said, David took from him 1,700 horsemen uh, and 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for a hundred chariots. Now, hamstringing a horse, of course, you know, uh, cutting its hamstring, you might say, well, that's pretty cruel. That's a prelude to killing it, because you can't actually kill a horse from the front, and not a war horse like that. So that's what they have to do. And uh, so he gets rid of it, but he spares a hundred, a hundred chariots. Now, is a hundred chariots many or few? But David, if you're relying on God for your battles, like you used to, remember that time when you had the sling uh, and and you relied on God? Why do you need 100 chariots? What are you doing? He's trying to make an insurance policy, isn't it? You know, in case God doesn't quite come through and deliver. Well, that's what David did. Now let's turn over to the life of Solomon. Uh, 1 1 Kings, 1 Kings, chapter 10. 1 Kings chapter 10, and we're going to start at verse 26. 1 Kings uh, 10 verse 26. Solomon, whatever his dad did, he did bigger. Solomon, uh, this is 1 Kings 10 verse 26. Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in chariot cities with the king in Jerusalem. And... Uh, the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone and he made cedar as plentiful as sycamore in the Shephelah and Solomon imported horses from Egypt and Kua and the king's traders received them from Kua at a price and a chariot would be imported for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for uh, 150 so through the king's traders uh, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian Hittite women from the Nations concerning which the, pe- um, the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall you, uh, they with you. Surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. That is a lot. But he got the idea from dad. Okay, dad didn't have that many, but he had more than he should have. Right? When it comes to wife, one, good. Whoever finds a, a wife finds a good thing. But any more than one, bad. Okay? So it's very clear. David had started breaking the rules. You might say, well, 100 chariots, oh, some gold. 
he'd got into that sense of a king like all the other kings. You know, the other kings, they've got their harems. The other kings, they've got their treasure hoards. The other kings, they've got their armies. David, you are a king of God's people and you have God. That's all you're meant to. That's what you, he's the one you're meant to rely on. And so he'd begun to get into that idea of uh, living like the other kings. So that's the, ver- <laughs> the first problem. The first problem is simply this, ignoring the scriptures. But I want to say, also, David cultivates some bad habits. Let's turn back to 1 Samuel and chapter 24. Now, there's a great thing about David, and that is that he doesn't try to make himself king. He becomes king because God makes him king. And he will not do anything to get the last guy Saul out of the way. He has lots of chances to bump him off, and he doesn't take them. And 1 Samuel 24 is about exactly one of those. Now, um, go away, read it this afternoon. It's, 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 it's wonderful. I'm not, not going to go into the detail. But there's just a time when um, Saul is going to, I don't know how to say this in American English, but I'm going to try. He's going to the restroom in a cave. Can, can, you, can you say that? Does that make sense? Um, we don't really use restroom like that. We say toilet, but I understand that's a rude word for you. So, um, but you know what he's doing? He's in the cave. David has the opportunity to creep up, snip off a bit of his, his robe, uh, and, uh, you know, he had the opportunity to kill him, but he, he didn't. That's chapter 24. Chapter 26 is another time that David creeps down, actually into Saul's tent with his mate, and steals the spear and the water jug from the tent. Now, the re- reason he's able to do that is actually God has put the people into a super deep sleep, and that's why. So God is enabling him, and in chapter 24 and 26, he does not attack the king. Now, I want to tell you about sandwiches. I know, uh, no, not, not, not food sandwiches. Sandwiches in the Bible, that often you get a couple of things next door to each other, or just two passages, panels, if you like, where you're meant to compare and contrast. So, John chapter 3, Jesus talks with this really um, upright uh, Jewish leader dude called Nicodemus, and then he's talking to um, if I can call her, morally low-down Samaritan woman in the next chapter. That's the sort of thing that happens all the time. Now here, in 1 Samuel 24 and 26, David says, spares Saul's life. In between those, we're going to see a passage that is really quite different, and let's turn to it, and it's 1 Samuel chapter 25. And we're going to start at verse 1. Yeah. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him uh, in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful. But the man was harsh and badly behaved, and he was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, as you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Very peaceful. Great. I hear that you've been, you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us. And we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Now, therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes. For we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have in hand to your servants and to your son, David. 
So the request is, I've got 10 guys here. Um, we haven't harmed you, so please will, I've sent you 10 guys, that's a hint as to the size of gift I'm looking for, the amount that 10 people can carry. Uh, please just give them something. Seems reasonable, doesn't it? I mean, I haven't stolen from you, so give me something. <laughs> when David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of the Lord. And then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take up my bread and my water, my water, and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I don't know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. There were about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when they were in the fields, so long as uh, we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sears of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow had in the wilderness, so that nothing was missing of him that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. Now watch this. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave as much as one male of all who belong to him. Now, in fact, Dave, David's quite cunning. When he swears an oath, he, it goes like this. Um, when, when people swear an oath back then, it's, uh, may, usually it's, may God do to me, and a lot more too, if I don't fulfill this oath. Now, David doesn't do that, which is put the consequence of breaking the oath on him. He, as he says, may, may my enemies suffer even more if I don't, if you see what I mean. Uh, so whereas Saul stupidly calls an oath on himself and then breaks it and, of course, suffers from that, David uh, calls an oath where his enemies are going to suffer and then he breaks it uh, and his enemies suffer. And he's someone that's blessed by God. And God shows his judgment because he actually strikes Nabal dead. He doesn't actually go ahead with killing every male. But David was about to. So whereas he holds very precious the life of Saul, we see he's not holding the life of everyone precious. In fact, there's a time, just a little bit earlier than this, where he had lied to the high priest. He lied to the high priest, and he, he had said that he was on the king's mission when he wasn't. As a result, the priest Ahimelech and a whole load of other priests had been wiped out by Saul. And what David said? Uh, I knew that might have happened. So in other words, David has already got used to holding other people's lives more lightly. So in other words, there's already a bad habit there. He's getting, as well as he's breaking the scriptures, he's cultivating bad habits. And at first, what happens 
is God rescues him from his enemies. But then we start seeing that there's a changing pattern. God is still rescuing him, but he's rescuing him instead from his own stupid mistakes. So what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 27? Let's look at 1 Samuel 27 verse 1. This is after God has rescued David a whole load of times. This is what we get. 1 Samuel 27 verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day at the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So that's what he does. He goes over into enemy territory, so he's outside of the reach of Saul. But he's doubted God. God's already rescued him at least eight times. One of the times he was rescued, he was completely surrounded by Saul, and then Saul got a call on his phone. No, it wasn't a phone, it was a messenger, who said, uh, by the way, you're being attacked. So Saul had to call it all off. I mean, it's, it's not David's skill that made him escape. It's God's blessing that made him escape. And God's been blessing him and enabling him to escape again and again. But you know what? He gets tired of doing the right thing. Doing the right thing is tiring. You do it once, twice, three times. And after a while, you think, hey, I've done this eight times. I don't need to fight this battle again, do I? And God says, yes, you're supposed to keep trusting me. I know you've trusted me before, but you're still supposed to trust. You know, I think there's a tendency of us, we want to settle down. We all want to have those fights back in the past that we can rely on. You know, a really chilling story I heard when was actually, it was to do with an old people's home, which is an old people's home for retired missionaries. And someone who worked in that home said, I have never found such a rude group. Now, most retired missionaries aren't like that. But it's very easy for people to have done really good stuff in the past. And then they sort of think, well, I've done my bit. I don't need to keep going, do I? And the answer is, yes, you do. I know you've trusted God already. You need to keep trusting him. So David gets himself into this stupid situation of being in the land of the Philistines. I know some of you say Philistines, but I hope you understand what I mean. And, and then they're going to fight against Saul. And so he ends up being on the same side as them. And you're wondering what's going to happen. Well, the guy who likes him, called Achish, says, um, you know, I trust you. <laughs> and he says, well, of course I want to fight against the enemies of my lord the king. Which is a bit ambiguous, because who's his lord the king? You know, uh, but anyway, God gets him out of that mess because he actually makes it so the other Philistines don't want him to fight with them. But then, because of that, while he's been away from his home, all the, all the wives and children have been taken off from his home. So then he has to chase after them. So God's getting him after mess, out of mess after mess. And that's the bad habits that he's got into. He's got used to the comforts of life as king. So first thing, first problem, ignoring scripture. Second problem is just those bad habits. But I want to say that actually it goes even deeper than that. Sometimes in the Bible it's really interesting to look at the very first words that people ever say. So what are the very first words recorded of David in the Bible? Well there we need to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is when he fights Goliath. It's a great chapter. It's when he has a really high moment. But I want you to notice the very first words that we see recorded of David in the Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 17 verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, 
What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should divide the armies of the living God? Now I want you to notice there are two bits of that phrase. One is, hey, what's the prize for me? Two is, huh, he's defying God. And it's really interesting that if you like, right back at the very first time we see David, we see one bit of motivation that is really, really good. He's concerned for God's name. And another bit, that if you allow it to grow and grow and grow, what's in it for me? Can do a whole load of damage over time. That hairline crack can grow over time. And I want to say, I think that's what went on with David. David is a good shepherd, but he is not the good shepherd. The good shepherd, Jesus Christ, absolutely perfect. Everyone else will let you down. And the Bible is a story of how everyone else will let you down. And so in the Bible, in the Old Testament, we have loads and loads of pictures of Jesus. And David is a picture of Jesus, but then you find that the picture runs out. Because Jesus is so amazing that you can't do justice to him with any one picture, you see? So every picture has that flip side where it doesn't quite do justice. And so Jesus is perfect. David is a good shepherd at first. But that hairline crack of self-interest is allowed to grow. You know, God's blessed me a a lot. um, And, you know, over time, I've, I've just got... You know, at first I had no bank account. I was born, no bank account. Even as a young child, no bank account. Now, now I've got quite a few bank accounts. You know, at first you have nothing and then you get more and more things. And easily you can slip into that natural, sinful desires that we have. If we allow them to grow, if they're not constrained by the work of the Holy Spirit, then they will just grow and grow and grow. And at first they're fine. You know, it's okay to want a reward. It's okay to want your paycheck. You know, he, he, he wanted that, but it was just allowed to grow. Do you see? Now, I find I pray more for times when I'm speaking than I pray for times when other people are speaking. I'm sorry about that, but I do. But, you know, so I'm self-interested, you could say. But I feel it's also, so, we're like that. God, God's made us like that, and that's okay. You know? But if you just allow that to grow in an unchecked way, All sorts of dangerous things can happen. And I think David didn't check that at all. But what's the good news? Well, the good news is this. David failed, ignored scripture, he developed bad habits, and he didn't check that nature which was in him. The good news is this. God's come in in the person of Jesus Christ and has given us the perfect shepherd. And the perfect shepherd didn't look at what was in it for him. He actually gave up everything. <laughs> he gave up. He gave up the resources. <laughs> All the gold of heaven, he gave up in order to come for us. He looked and he was concerned for the name of his father. And so he died. He suffered for us. Whereas David at first had been prepared to give his life up for the sheep, we find that over time, He stops going out for battle. He sends Joab. It's not the first time he sent Joab. This time wasn't the first time. Gradually, you get other people to do the work for you. Jesus never got other people to do the work for him. 
he did the hardest stuff himself. And he is just the most amazing warrior. But he's the one who is the prince of peace. He defeats his enemies. He defeats sin by giving himself up. Oh no, he doesn't wave a sword. He, doesn't, he could have called in the angels. He could have called in legions of angels. He could have called in the chariots. But he never does. He could have been rescued from the cross. People mocked him and said, you know, he saved others. Let him save himself. And at any moment, he could have just decided, I'm going to do that. But he didn't. Because he is perfect. And the question is this. He calls us to follow him. But you might say, well, that's impossible. Because I'm a fallen human being and he's not. So how can I follow him? But he calls us to follow him. Which means he's also promising us the resources to follow him. And when he says, follow me. And by the way, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I am with you to the end of the age. He's saying his presence goes with us. You know, Matthew, I love Matthew's gospel. You know how Matthew's gospel works? Jesus comes, Matthew chapter 1, it's called God with us. Matthew chapter 18, he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm with you. How does it end? It says, I am with you to the end of the age. How can Jesus give us God's presence today? I'll tell you why. Because Matthew 27 verse 46 says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can have the presence of God with us today because Jesus Christ gave up that nearness to the Father. He gave up. He was punished in our place on the cross. And as a result, we can know our sins taken away. So friends, I don't want you to look at the life of David and be depressed and think, oh, you know, uh, I, you know I'm going to fail because I'm human. I want you to look at the life of David. Take it as a warning about how we can easily drift away from God. But also remember this that Christ has promised he's going to be with us, that Christ gives us power, he gives us the power of his Holy Spirit, and he calls us to follow him. And it's what he said to Peter, feed my sheep. You want to follow me? Our job is to be good shepherds and to take care of others in the flock. And he will give us the strength as we do that. I'll just hand back to Gordon. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Appreciate that. And he is with us. I thank you for that reminder. He's with us. He will continue to be with us. And so we just have a space here at the end of our service where you can call out to him, uh, gather up with someone around you and, and cry out to him in prayer or come and pray with Peter or me or one of our shepherds or give your life to Christ. Maybe it's time that you cross that line of faith and declare him to be your Lord and your Savior and trust that he will provide each day as you walk faithfully with your Lord. However you need to respond, do that as we stand together and worship.